and welcome to this episode of Field Notes and Folklore. Today we're going to be talking about a plant that is not really loved by many. We're going to be talking about poison ivy today. But before I get into poison ivy, I just have a couple of things I want to go over. So today is going to be the last day to sign up for the seasoned tree tier on Patreon and get that autumn Patreon box. One thing that I am including in those boxes is a photography print that I took myself and I sign it and frame it. Each one is going to be unique because it's a thrifted frame, so each box is going to be a little bit unique because it is mostly thrifted items that are related to the season. So if you want to sign up for that tier, tonight at midnight is going to be the last opportunity to sign up and get the autumn box, and that is for the $15 tier, the seasoned tree tier. Next, just a reminder that we're going to have a special episode next episode. Episode 12 will be a cryptozoology episode. We're going to cover the topic of cryptozoology and what it is. It comes out on Halloween, so I wanted to do something a little bit special for that. So, poison ivy. Why did I decide to cover poison ivy today? I am highly allergic to not the plant, as we'll find out. We'll go into that. But I have some funny stories about it, and it's actually a really interesting plant. So the scientific name of poison ivy, there's actually two varieties here in the United States. There's eastern poison ivy, which is Toxicodendron radicans, and then there's western poison ivy, which is also sometimes called northern poison ivy, and that is Toxicodendron rydbergii. And these plants are in the family Anacardiaceae, and this family is commonly known as the sumac or the cashew family. And within this family, there's about 80 genera and about 870 species, and these plants within this family are mostly evergreen or deciduous trees, and they can be either trees or shrubs or woody vines, and they are found all across the world. Most of them are native to tropical and subtropical parts of the world, but there are some that are native to temperate regions of the world as well. And these plants within this family specifically have resin ducts in the bark that characteristically exude gums and resins that turn black when exposed to the air. So this is a specific thing within this family of plants that occurs. Just to go into this just a little bit deeper, there is a difference between gums and resins. So in gums, when a plant is cut, injured, or stressed, the cells of the plant break down and this gum or the sticky substance exudes out of the plant. And the purpose of this is to absorb water and it swells to seal off the injury to the plant and it's helping to heal that damage. This process is called gamosis. With resins, it's an almost identical process except this secretion 
is not called gum. It's resin instead of gum. And it occurs in specialized cavities called resin passages. Resins mostly occur in gymnosperms, which are cone-producing plants, especially those of the Pineaceae family, which are pines, firs, and cedars. Now, the primary difference between gums and resins is its solubility in water, so whether it can break down in water or not. Gums are water-soluble, and resins are not. We'll go into this just a little bit more when we get to poison ivy specifically. And then also in the family of cashews and sumacs, their leaves are usually compound with their leaflets composed in various arrangements. So just a quick review, a compound leaf is a leaf that looks like it has a bunch of tiny leaves within it. So it looks like it has a bunch of different leaves all put together into one leaf, but it's actually one big leaf. Going down to the genus level of Toxicodendron, this group of plants includes poison oak, poison ivy, poison sumac, and the Chinese lacquer tree. These plants are going to be the more temperate plants within that family. They're widespread throughout North America except for Hawaii and Alaska. Many of these plants prefer lower elevations, so they're not really found in the higher parts of mountains. They're typically found below 1,500 meters. And all parts of these toxicodendron plants contain erushiol. This is the part of the plant. It is the sap or the resin that we just talked about that is found within the plant. So this resin, when it is exposed to air, erushiol turns black and then it hardens. This is, again, to prevent the moisture loss. Scientists speculate that erushiol evolved as an antimicrobial defense to protect the plant against infection, which goes along with what the resins and gums are for in the family as a whole. And erushiol is the primary allergenic cause of contact dermatitis when people interact with these plants. It's typically encountered by people brushing up against the damaged stems or leaves. If the plant is not damaged, they do not encounter this. The plant has to be damaged in some way, shape, or form. It has to have this resin on the outside of it in order for them to get that reaction. And the skin exposure results in rapid absorption of the erushiol due to its lipophilic nature. And lipophilic just means that it combines with or dissolves in lipids or fats readily, which means that it sticks onto our body pretty easily. And the name for this toxicity or allergen varies and these names include Roos dermatitis, erushiol-induced contact dermatitis, and toxicodendron dermatitis. Out of most of the scientific research, toxicodendron dermatitis is going to be the most common. Out of all allergic contact dermatitis in North America, toxicodendron dermatitis is the most common cause of it. I saw some different numbers on this. 
on the low end, it's estimated that 50% of adults are allergic to Arushiol, but most reports that I saw said anywhere from 75 to 80% of people are allergic to it. And an estimated 25 to 40 million cases require treatment yearly. The reaction to Arushiol isn't your normal allergic reaction. The Arushiol, as we said earlier, is lipophilic. And it binds to the proteins in the membranes of your skin cells. And this interferes with their ability to communicate with other cells in your body. So it's not an irritant burning your skin. The allergic reaction is a result of your immune system attacking your own skin cells. And it's because of this that topical and oral antihistamines are typically ineffective. That's because there's no histamine release. So those medicines won't really do anything. The best thing to do if you come in contact with one of these plants. First is to use soap and wash everything as soon as you can. Clean your clothes immediately, clean your skin immediately, especially under your fingernails. Prevention of that reaction is going to be your first line of defense. Arushiol does not break down quickly and it can remain on dead plant material, gloves, and tools for over a year. And it can penetrate rubber or latex gloves. So all clothing and objects with potential exposure should be cleaned with warm water and detergent. But if you do happen to get a reaction and you seek medical attention, most of the time the best management that doctors will use is to prescribe a moderate to high dose of topical or systemic corticosteroids early on when the poison ivy is starting that reactionary process. I was incredibly excited to find that there is ongoing research on developing a vaccine-like compound. So far, from what they are reporting, the initial phases of the clinical trial of the clinical trials do sound promising. There are lots of misconceptions about the poison ivy rash. A lot of people will say that it can spread from person to person or that it'll spread all over your body or that you can look at it and get it. And none of those are true. Poison ivy does not spread from one person to the other. You cannot get it from an open wound of the other person. It does not spread from one part of the body to the other. It only spreads from the contact of that arushio. Most of the time, it is from that residual arushio that is left on clothing, tools. You could get it from the fur of pets. Again, under fingernails. That is an incredibly incredibly important part to make sure that is clean if there is any chance that you have come in contact with poison ivy or anything similar. So now that I've probably scared you a little bit about the reactions that may occur if you come in contact with it, you might want to know what it looks like to be able to watch out for it. 
both the eastern and western varieties do look pretty similar. So we will go into those. They do have slight differences. They're pretty easy to identify, though. Toxicum in Latin means poison. And dendron is Greek for tree. Basically, it comes down to being a poison tree. Radicans, in the eastern poison ivy scientific name, means spreading roots. The western variety name doesn't really give much of a description. It's named after Pearl Axer Rydberg, who was an early 20th century member of the New York Botanical Garden and an expert on flora of the western United States. So that one doesn't really give anything descriptive. But the eastern variety does, and we'll go into that. For both varieties, they are woody perennials, meaning that they live from year to year to year. They have, like others in their family, compound leaves, and they specifically have three leaflets. So the common saying, leaves of three, except technically it's leaflets of three, because when you see those leaves of three, it's all one leaf. That is one leaf. And those leaves are going to be alternate, meaning when you see them along the vine or the stem, they're going to be not directly across from each other. There's going to be one on one side, and then up a little bit, there's going to be one on the other side. And then you'll go up a little bit further, and there'll be one on the other side again, and that pattern will continue the entire way up the stem or down the vine, however it is you're looking at it. And these leaves are shiny. They are very shiny. And often dark green, but it can vary depending on where you are. And in the fall, they turn a beautiful red, which is why I decided to talk about it today. The red that they turn in the fall is absolutely stunning. We are right in the middle of peak fall here in Ohio, and... A lot of trees have poison ivy all over them. And if you happen to look at a tree and say the majority of the tree is turning orange or yellow, but you see a bright red going up the trunk, that is poison ivy, most likely. There are some other vining plants that turn red, but it is very, very beautiful to see the stark contrast of color and to be able to identify the different plants based on the color that they are turning in the fall. And as a naturalist, I probably should have known better. But last year I was picking up leaves, as one does, when you think fall colors are pretty and you want to make bookmarks out of leaves. And I pick up this beautiful leaf that has, it's partially turned, it's red, and it still has green in it. And I'm looking around, trying to figure out, what is this leaf? What tree did this come from? I'm looking all around. And then I look up. Look up in the canopy. It doesn't match any of the trees. I look at eye level. It was a poison ivy leaflet. I was carrying around a poison ivy leaflet. 
So they are very beautiful. Just make sure that what you are picking up is not a poison ivy leaflet. Also being able to identify them, their margins, which again, a leaf margin is going to be the edge of the leaf. That can be smooth or irregularly tubed or lobed. And on each leaf, so again, the leaf is compound. It's going to have other leaflets on it. The two lower leaflets often have thumb-like lobes at their bases. On those two lower leaflets, their petioles, which is the stem-like structure, are typically very short, while the center leaflet has its own longer petiole. That's the one I was carrying around, was the center one, because I was carrying it by that stem, by that petiole. Poison ivy frequently produce rhizomes or underground stems, which allows them to spread vegetatively. This just means that they can reproduce on their own instead of spreading by seeds, which they do as well. When they do produce by seed, first they produce the clusters of small yellow-green flowers with five petals, and then those flowers turn into berries that are grayish to white. And then the seed dispersal is facilitated by birds and other wildlife. And birds and household pets are not sensitive to erushiol like humans are. So they are able to distribute and disperse those seeds. Humans and possibly some primates are the only known animals in the world that are sensitive to this resin. So pretty much everything else has no problem with it. And specifically for eastern poison ivy, it grows as a vine with aerial roots to secure it to trees and other objects. This was the one that I picked up and I saw at eye level. It has those woody stems that are covered in the coarse brown hairs. They're very hairy. As a shrub, because it can grow in a few different forms, it can get about six feet long. And then as a vine, it can grow up to 150 feet long. So when you're walking around in the woods and you see what you think may be a tree branch, be careful because it very possibly could be a poison ivy branch coming off of a vine of a tree. So just make sure, as always, that you know what you're touching. It happens even to the best of us. Just be careful. And if you do happen to touch it, take those preventative measures, do your best to wash up, and if you have to, see a doctor, and they'll get you taken care of. Western poison ivy, on the other hand, you need to keep your eyes on the ground for this one. It has more of an upright growth habit, and it does not climb. It does not have these aerial roots. It is more shrub-like. It's typically only one to two feet tall, but it can grow up to four feet tall given proper conditions. Despite the names Eastern and Western, both varieties are pretty widely distributed throughout the United States. Eastern poison ivy is native as far west as Kansas, and then it's also found in southern Canada, Mexico, South America, and some Asian countries. 
It tends to thrive on edge habitat and in disturbed areas. And its preferred habitat is rich soil and good drainage, but it can live just about anywhere. It can tolerate poor or rich soil. Shade, full sun, doesn't really matter. It'll grow anywhere. And just like other members in the Toxicodendron genus, it's not known to grow in those higher elevations. And western poison ivy grows throughout southern Canada in most of the lower 48 states. However, it is not found in California and several southeastern states, and it's actually classified as endangered in the state of Ohio. And it's in the eastern parts of the United States that call western poison ivy northern poison ivy. And that's because of it not really being found in that southeastern portion of the United States. And this variety tends to have a preference for those more drier, sunnier spots, and again, thrives along trail edges. But like the eastern variety, it can go and grow just about anywhere. Despite all the human complaints with it, there is a lot of ecological value to poison ivy. Birds, reptiles, deer, and amphibians eat the stems and the leaves of the plant and its berries and also use the plant as shelter. At least 75 bird species have been documented eating this plant, particularly gallinaceous birds, which are birds such as wild turkeys, northern bobwhites, ruffed grouse, and sharp-tailed grouse. These have been documented eating the fruits and seeds of the poison ivy. As far as mammals go, animals such as bears, mule deer, white-tailed deer, moose, foxes, woodchucks, muskrats, rabbits, squirrels, wood rats, mice, they've all been documented eating the stems and the leaves and the berries. In fact, in southern Indiana, USDA reported that eastern poison ivy was one of seven most important plants consumed year-round by the white-tailed deer. With the white-tailed deer eating it with greater frequency in the summer months than in the spring. There's also a variety of insects that feed on the flowers. This includes beetles, flies, bees, wasps, ants, and butterflies. Their flowers aren't really specialized for any particular pollinator type, but ants, bees, and wasps do appear to be the most important pollinators. Now that we talked about its value to wildlife, does it have any value to people? We already went into some detail about Arushiol and how that reaction affects humans. And honestly, that could be a whole episode on its own. So I'm not going to go any further into the medical side of that because I could and I'm not going to because that will add on, no joke, like two hours of content. So we're instead going to go into some other aspects of humans and poison ivy and hopefully look at some of those more positive aspects. So because of the Arushiol, some people see poison ivy as a natural human repellent so that the natural habitats 
or other habitats might be left alone. There is a story of, in Europe, there was a gardener that planted poison ivy as a hedgerow to discourage others from stealing his apples. I mean, I wouldn't go there. I wouldn't want to get poison ivy. But to know how poison ivy is used, we really need to go to the original people that evolved alongside it, that grew alongside the plant and learned alongside the plant, the indigenous peoples of the United States of America and North America. There were Native American tribes that used poison ivy medicinally. So tea radicans was used to treat various swellings, boils, and asthma. And in order to do that, the leaves would be applied directly to cure the dermatitis of these ailments. And again, T. radicans is the eastern poison ivy variety. And the western variety, or T. rydbergi, was frequently used as a way to get water out of the blood, or a vesicant to get water out of the blood. And it was also discovered during an archaeological investigation at Mesa Vera, New Mexico. They found seeds in a medical man's possessions, which suggests that the seeds of this plant were being used medicinally as well. But this isn't a case where anybody could actually talk to the people, so we don't know exactly what these were being used for. There were also several Native American tribes that used the dry leaves of the eastern poison ivy, either alone or mixed with tobacco, for chewing, as in chewing tobacco, or smoking. Once Europeans started to arrive to the Americas, they started to not just emulate and expand on beliefs, but quote-unquote document and claim discovery of certain plants, even though they are not the ones that discovered it. They had been used this way in a very long time prior to being taught how to do these things. And emulating and expanding on the Native American practices, Europeans believed that poison ivy extracts could be used for loosening the bowels, that was their words, not mine, and treating tuberculosis, melancholy, epilepsy, palsy, eczema, severe burns, and chronic cutaneous afflictions such as herpes. This European quote-unquote discovery led to being a current common ingredient in homeopathic preparations, the most common of which is Roost Tox, which is used to counteract symptoms such as arthritis, itching, sciatica, or as an antiseptic. Europeans also adopted the practice of adding arushiol as a dye from the Native Americans. Again, I really want to emphasize that they did not do this on their own. They were taught this. And then later claimed that they discovered a lot of these things on their own, 
and they did not. They did not develop these relationships on their own, especially as we move forward. And some of these Europeans claim things that may not necessarily be true. The explorer John Smith published the first written account of Poison Ivy, which, surprise, surprise, it was based on something else, which nobody can do original work, apparently, based on an unpublished manuscript by Nathaniel Butler, who learned about the plant while he was governor of Bermuda. By 1640, Poison Ivy was being cultivated in the English Royal Gardens at Kew, in the gardens of the Faculty at Medicine in Paris, and a few other locations. In October of 1784, William Bartram, who was a Philadelphia horticulturist, was writing out a list of 220 American trees, shrubs, and herbs. With this list, he was essentially selling seeds to European collectors. And in this list, it included Rus radicans, which has since been renamed Toxicodendron radicans. Eastern poison ivy. He was selling eastern poison ivy to collectors in Europe. By 1804, poison ivy was flourishing near Paris in the gardens of Empress Josephine Bonaparte, who was an avid amateur botanist and plant collector. The renowned flower artist, Pierre-Joseph Redoute, drew a poison ivy plant with its berries for a luxury publication on native and imported trees and shrubs cultivated in France. However, poison ivy couldn't truly become popular in Great Britain and continental Europe because of the erucial-induced rashes. Going back into some medical history again, there were a lot of different medical experiments on the plant during the 18th and 19th century. In 1780, there was a there was a particular individual who found a fondness for this plant. His name was André Igne Joseph Dufresnoy. He was an army physician and medical professor from Valenciennes in northern France. And he frequently gave different botany lectures to not only his students, but also that were open to the general public. And in one particular lecture, he was showing off the leaves of poison ivy and speaking of their irritant effects. And there was this young florist in the crowd, and they couldn't believe that such an innocent-looking plant could be so powerful. So after the lecture... He rubbed the leaves vigorously in his hands. Guess what? He got a rash. After the rash went away, though, he went up to Dufresnoy and told him that there was this ugly old sore on his wrist that had completely vanished. Dufresnoy was thrilled, and he began experimenting. But like any good doctor, any good position? He experimented on himself first. 
he began boiling leaves to make an infusion for internal use, a.k.a. for him to drink. And he reported that even a strong infusion made with 12 leaves only produced mild side effects of a slight upset stomach and made him sweat more and made him have increased urination. So then, since he passed the test himself, he began prescribing the infusion to other people and later switched to a distilled extract that he began prescribing to people suffering from a range of skin maladies and even to some people with leg paralysis, claiming positive results in many cases. As far as poison ivy goes in modern-day potential, it actually is showing a lot of potential as a climate change indicator. T. radicans, which is the eastern poison ivy, shows morphological symptoms when exposed to air pollution, which makes it an invaluable indicator of ozone damage. These plants are also tolerant of wastewater and may help in pollution remediation. Poison ivies are also an early successional plant, meaning that they help disturbed areas early on in the succession and they can really help protect soil from erosion, which allows habitats to become established. One downside with climate change is a Duke University study showed that increased CO2 levels are actually benefiting poison ivy and their erucial production. And this is because of their increased photosynthesis, because they need the CO2 for photosynthesis. This study showed that the ratio of erucial is higher in plants that are exposed to a higher concentrations of CO2. Subsequent studies looking into this higher ratio of erucial clarified that the erucial was actually being produced at the same rate, but because leaf production was faster, individual plants were capable of producing much more of the resin. And as far as economic benefits go, poison ivy pollen is actually a major constituent of honey in Midwestern and Southern states. So if you are eating local honey that has not been super processed, like the honey has that you buy at a grocery store, if you buy local honey, there's a strong chance that you have some poison ivy pollen in there. But don't worry, because the pollen is non-toxic, because it is coming from a part of the plant that does not have that resin in it. Because again, that resin is the plant's response to being damaged. And pollinators are not damaging the plant, they're helping it. So the pollen is completely safe to consume in the form of honey. Though there's not a lot of older folklore besides the more practical uses, in modern day, poison ivy has made a major statement. 
Back in 1959, there was a song recorded first by the Coasters called Poison Ivy. It was written by lyricist Jerry Lieber and composer Mike Stroller. They had also written Hound Dog and Jailhouse Rock, who was sung by Elvis Presley. And this song was a metaphor for the sexually transmitted disease gonorrhea. And in the spring of 1959, it hit the top 10. Other groups to perform this song include Dave Clark Five, The Rolling Stones, Mandred Mann, Linda McCartney, and Hanson. Here are some of the lyrics. Measles make you bumpy, and mumps, mumps will make you lumpy, and chicken pox will make you jump and twitch. A common cold will fool ya, and whooping cough will cool ya, but poison ivy, Lord will make you itch. You're gonna need an ocean of calamine lotion. You'll be scratching like a hound the minute you start to mess around. Poison ivy, poison ivy, late at night while you're sleeping, poison ivy comes a creeping around. In 1992, there was a movie by the name of Poison Ivy that was directed by Cat Shee and starring Drew Barrymore, Sarah Gilbert, Tom Skerritt, and Cheryl Ladd. This movie is considered a drama suspense thriller, and it is rated R. And of course, I can't not mention the DC Comics character Poison Ivy. I'm embarrassed to say that I don't know as much about this character as I wish I did, but she first made her appearance in Batman comic number 181 in 1966. She controls plants and uses pheromones to control people, and she is an enemy to Batman, but it's debated whether she's a villain or not. She's better described as an eco-terrorist. Her desire to save the world from the evils of man through any means necessary puts a debate on the table as to where she's actually a villain in doing evil or whether she is more of the eco-terrorist trying to do good, but through different means. And with most plants that are poisonous, there's some sort of phrase that tends to go along with them, and I'll leave you with this one for poison ivy. Leaflets of three, let it be. Berries of white, a poisonous sight. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Field Notes and Folklore. If you have any questions, comments, anything you'd like to tell me about, you can send me an email. Send that to fieldnotesandfolklore at gmail.com. You can comment on the Facebook page, put memes up there, upload cool photos of things you find ask for identification of things, I will happily identify anything for you. That is facebook.com slash groups slash field notes and folklore. I'm a little bit behind right now, but there is a TikTok over at field notes and folklore and the Instagram at field notes and folklore. And if you would like to support the show, you can leave a rating on Spotify Or you can leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. Or you can join the Patreon at patreon.com slash fieldnotesandfolklore. 
And don't forget, if you want to grab that autumn Patreon box, you have to join by midnight tonight. And that is Tuesday, October 17th at midnight Eastern Daylight Time. Okay. 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 Okay.